This is Julie Rieger, author of The Ghost Photographer and co-host of Insider's Guide to the Other Side. And I'm Brenda Viam. I may not have written a book, but I'm in Julie's book. And you are the most gifted psychic on the planet. <laughs> Come on. Listen to Insider's Guide to the Other Side on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There was an early story on when I first ran that I looked too regal in my tweed suit with pearls and every hair in place to ever relate to the average voter in New Jersey. It's so funny how we're so judged by our packaging, isn't it? I know. I know. I never wore pearls again. That was Christy Todd Whitman, the first female governor of New Jersey who served between 1994 and 2001 and someone I've always deeply admired because she's come across as level-headed, measured, and really in this very partisan, toxic atmosphere that we're living in today, Brian, someone who I think was pretty moderate and certainly listened to both sides. And even when she ran for office in 1993, it was very difficult for somebody like Christy Whitman to get through a Republican primary. Mike Murphy, who was on this show earlier, was her campaign consultant. He described to me just even though she was such a big star and a great candidate, she was considerably to the left of where Republican primary voters were. And, and that course, was back in when? That was back in 1993. And so, of course, that was pre-Palin, pre-Tea Party, pre-Trump. And the world has changed pretty dramatically since then. So query whether somebody like Christy Whitman could get elected to office in either party today. I've done so many political interviews and female candidates and office holders are few and far between. I was heartened to read, though, since Donald Trump was elected president, something like 11,000 women have been inspired to run for office. So hopefully things will change because I think the record is pretty abysmal when it comes to electing women to positions of power. Well, it's improved a little on the legislative side. There are more women in the House and the Senate than when Christy Whitman was governor, but not so much among chief executives, executive jobs around the country. There are still very few female governors. And this is more of an issue, I think, for the voters. We have to be more willing and able to imagine women in these roles. I am woman, hear me roar. You've done In that numbers already. too big to ignore. Oops, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Governor Whitman has stayed involved in political discourse, at least, writing a lot of op-eds and opining about the state of the environment as the former head of the EPA. And of course, we talked about climate change and whether there are reasons to be hopeful or whether we should all just move inland and uh, give up now. But um, of course, most Americans probably last remember her as the EPA administrator right after 9-11, when she infamously said that the air was safe to breathe, she later apologized for that mistake. Because, of course, so many first responders got very sick after working down at the pile, as it was called, following the terrible events at the World Trade Center. I interviewed her for 60 Minutes uh, many years ago about that, and um, she clearly came to regret that decision because she did put a lot of people in danger. And her tenure at the EPA was a very tumultuous one, as we discussed. She had major conflicts with the administration, Vice President Cheney in particular, about climate change, about how 
power plants should be regulated and other issues. And we got into all of that. But more broadly, we talked about the lessons that she learned as somebody who was in the arena taking incoming fire for decades, somebody who took risks and put herself out there. She certainly was born into a family where she didn't have to do that. And she's in many ways an exemplary public servant. She has a long history with President Donald Trump. And the first thing we asked her is how she was feeling as she is watching things unfold in the nation's capital. What are you thinking, Christy Todd Whitman? I'm very troubled. I mean, I've seen this coming for a while. My book back in 2005, I guess it was, um, kind of predicted what was going to go on. And being in a position of saying, I told you so, is not satisfying at all when it's moved this way. I've maintained for a long time that I thought that Trump voters and the Bernie Sanders voters were two sides of the same coin. They were people who were angry and frustrated and scared at the inaction in Washington and Congress. They didn't know what was happening with their future, and they didn't really listen to what their candidates were saying in the same way that maybe others were. They just wanted to hear they were going to blow up the existing system because it just wasn't working for them. Sometimes I wonder, do you think people expect too much from their government? Oh, I think they have very high expectations, let's put it that way. But that wouldn't be hard nowadays because Congress really hasn't gotten, other than the Affordable Care Act, if you look back over the last eight to ten years, there haven't been a whole lot of major pieces of legislation that have changed the way people live. And as they are looking at the economy not it's growing 2%. It's just, it's not great. They're worried about their job. I mean, part of it, government can do nothing about because it is called, it's development. It is the technology. And technology is making a lot of people redundant. And we're seeing that. And that scares them. Uh, when you need to worry every day about how you're going to feed your family, keep a roof over your head, uh, whether you can get your health care. Those are real concerns, and they just didn't see Washington address them. They just saw Washington yelling, the people yelling at one another over partisan issues. And if you think back, we didn't used to, every vote was not a partisan vote. It used to be that there were policy decisions where two sides would come together and say, we've got to do this. And if someone had a real problem with a vote, they'd say, okay, you don't have to vote on this one or this amendment. We'll let you go. Now, every vote's a partisan vote. It's more about partisan politics than it is about policy. And as you mentioned, you wrote this book back in 2005 uh, about how the Republican Party needed to move to the center. This was before the Tea Party and Sarah Palin and certainly before Donald Trump. Why do you think we've seen this collapse in not just the center, but the constituency for the center in American politics? Well, I don't think we actually have seen a collapse of the constituency for the center. What we've seen is a collapse of people participating in the system. And if there's one thing I, that co- is good that came out of this election cycle is I think that people have finally figured out that the way to make a difference is at the ballot box. Because up until this cycle, if you looked at it, primaries, the average voter turnout primaries in this country was about 10%. For congressional rela- uh, elections, at the top, when they were the top of the ticket, it was 34%. And presidential, we patted ourselves on the back saying, if we got to over 50%. Well, when you do that and you think about it, particularly in the primaries, who is who makes up that 10%? They're the most partisan people. And they tend to have an agenda. They have one or two items about which they care deeply. And so the most partisan people are making the decisions 
that we face in the fall, that everyone else faces in the fall, and then people look at it and say, well, I don't like either of these candidates. But just to push so back I'm not going to vote. <laughs> but just to push back against you a little bit on that, mm -hmm. Donald Trump has like an 85 or 90 percent approval rating among Republicans. I the question which Republicans they're polling. They're polling his base. His base is very, very strong. They're true believers. They're people who say the system is so messed up that at least he's doing what well, they say he's doing what he said he was going to going to do, but he's not. And eventually, I think that will start to percolate down. Um, he's done some of it, though, and he has certainly talked to it. And uh, it, it's interesting. Early on, I heard anecdotally, I can't prove it, but that when he went first went down after he was uh, nominated to talk to the congressional leadership, he, they started to talk to him about policy. And he said, no, no, I figure out what people want to hear. And that's what I tell them. Well, let's step back and actually talk about your relationship with Donald Trump, if we might, <laughs> because that goes back quite a ways. Right. You were, of course, governor in New Jersey mm -hmm. while he was a major casino operator in Atlantic City. Mm -hmm. When did you meet him? How did you meet him? And what was that relationship like? Well, I met him at the very beginning when, after I'd been elected, we held a big event, fundraising event for charities called Many Faces, One Family in Atlantic City. And um, we had an entertainer who was supposed to do a concert that night, and I, it was Barry Manilow. And on the day of, he suddenly said, oh, I didn't know this was political, and he backed out. I have suspicions as to that might have been just a tad or orchestrated, but that could be me. Um, anyway, Donald Trump stepped up and said, I have... Um, Gosh, no, I can't remember. Paul Anka, It was I Paul Anka. That's right. We've Paul done Anka. our homework. When was this? This was in, right after I was elected. This was before my inaugural when we did a... That was that three days or the weekend before the, before the inaugural. And he stepped in, and Paul Anka was wonderful, and he was great, and, and Donald Trump Having couldn't Having my baby. <laughs> I can't stand that song, Christy. You prefer well, it was my better. way? <laughs> my way is better than I, you're having my baby. I, I, no, that's not one of my favorites, but he was very nice. <laughs> I mean, I actually wasn't all that worried about the whole thing because I figured, you know, this is, these kind of things happen. You right. just refund the money if people want it back. It was all for charity. Um Big deal. Go to bed earlier. But anyway, he did step in, and the only thing he asked was that um, he and Marla, uh, I can't remember. Marla who, Maples? Who was I don't the wife know, at the time. The wife at the time. Marla, yeah. Yeah, I think it probably was Marla. Just need, wanted to sit with John and I at the beginning, which he did, and, and it was fine. What really broke any relationship we had was when um, I opened up the corridor getting into Atlantic City made it easier for people to get into Atlantic City because I also, um, and nicer, the road nicer, the bridge, um, also opened up a piece of property that's access to a piece of property that Steve Wynn owned. It also opened up a better access to Trump's second casino, the Marina Casino, but because Steve Wynn was coming in. Who was Trump's arch rival at the time. Trump's arch rival. Now the uh, finance now chairman of yeah, the now Republican National Committee. So yeah. These groups, they, Life those things long. change a lot. So, so basically you were dead to him as a result of that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was very, he was not a supporter in my reelection campaign, shall we say. How did he make his displeasure known? Oh, I think he said some things that were not terribly nice. And did he tweet about you? <laughs> I don't think with tweeting Twitter. was around then. It was too long ago. <laughs> I, I think he would have if he, he were would able have, to. He would have if he could have. And, you know, I mean, that's just one of those things. It's uh, So uh, you endorsed John Kasich mm -hmm. in the campaign. Then you said you'd support Hillary over Trump. And right. at the time you wrote, 
A Hillary presidency promises more of the Obama failed policies, not exactly a glowing endorsement there. No. But she would at least walk into the Oval Office ready to govern. She would be a steady hand on the nuclear code. Do you think our current president is an unsteady hand on the nuclear codes? Well, fortunately, there are enough uh, roadblocks put in place for that to be um, the top concern. But I do certainly think, I do question his judgment. Uh, the kinds of things that we're hearing about what was said in the Oval Office with the Russians, um, his disclosure of sensitive information. Okay, he did not say it was Israel, but he gave enough information that allowed people to go backwards and say, this is clearly where it had to come and from. And then in Israel, he said, oh, I never mentioned Israel. Uh, yes, <laughs> which I never mentioned, which you want to say, oh, come on, really? Um He's his own worst enemy in many ways. If he didn't tweet things at, at 2 a.m., um, things would be a lot quieter. He keeps stories going that don't need to keep going or you know, wouldn't be as prominent. But all this stuff with Comey and the apparently what he said to the Russians about calling Comey a nut job and that he things were going to be easier. He didn't say he did it to relieve pressure on the Russian probe, but he just said it was things were much easier now. So you can – people draw their own conclusions from that. We have to be very careful, though. He did not say, I did it because. But step. But he back. did say – he did say in an NBC interview that was what he was thinking about, the yeah. Russian oh, investigation. I'm, so clearly, sure. I mean, if it walks like a duck and I, talks I'm, like I'm a duck, you, isn't I'm it a duck? From a legal point of view, I don't think you can make the A to B uh, that cleanly. Maybe not in a we courtroom. Not in a courtroom. That's all I'm talking in about. The court, in a courtroom in the, of public opinion, clearly uh, – People believe that. Uh, not his. Again, what's so fascinating and scary is that, that every poll that's been done, and particularly John DeLavope did one for um, Harvard, for the Kennedy School, and it showed people don't trust any institution. They don't trust the news. They don't trust the courts. They don't trust the presidency. And that's a really bad place for us to be as a nation. I mean, where do you turn? That's you, a, you, you know, trust? that's a topic of conversation everywhere I go. I just went to the graduation of Colorado College because mm -hmm. my stepson just graduated from there. And the commencement speaker gave an excellent, excellent address about truth decay and about how we deal with this bifurcated society that now currently exists. And I think everyone knows it exists. They bemoan it. And yet they don't know how to fix to it. To deal it. Yeah. How do you fix it when people are so partisan and, you know, they make fun of alternative facts, but I think they're clearly alternative points of view Oh, out absolutely. There. I wish I knew the answer. I wish it were simple that you could come up with one or two answers, but it's something that's going to take time. It really is, and it's, it's a reinforcing that what we have to do is listen to one another, stop shouting, that you can disagree without being disagreeable and it doesn't make you my enemy because you have a different position. If people would just take the time to really discuss issues, it's amazing how many points of uh, similarity in addressing them you can find. But, you know, you talk about listening and talking to each other. It does sound a tad kumbaya at mm -hmm. this point in time, yeah, Christy, exactly. because I obviously I agree, but it's sort of— Well, we have to push back. We have to push back harder uh, in the sense of we have to—it's so easy now to communicate— that we need to communicate. One of the things that we've found is that if you reinforce positive behavior, I mean, if there are, for instance, senators or congressmen who are doing what you want them to do, let them know that. Most of the time we don't. We just bitch at the ones we don't 
who aren't doing what we want them to do. And so if you're a representative and you're supposedly representing your constituents and all you hear from are the people who are saying you're doing a terrible job or because or that was a really awful vote or don't you dare vote this way and not hearing from the people who say, you know, we're, we're glad that you're talking to the other side. We're glad that you're forming bipartisan coalitions. Then what do they do? Uh, they representing their constituents. They also know that if they go against leadership and actually try to, because nowadays, if you reach across the aisle at all, leadership says to you, you better watch out. We're going to get you in a primary and we're not going to support you. Uh, that's scary stuff if what you want to do is be in office so you can make a difference. Are you discouraged that Republicans on Capitol Hill haven't grown a pair? <laughs> yeah, I am. And I'm discouraged that Schumer at the very beginning of this administration and his uh, what he was saying to his members was one of our one of the things we want to do is is spend every moment trying to embarrass the president. I mean, that's not the attitude we needed. Isn't that we what Mitch McConnell said though when, oh, I, when I Barack don't. Obama was elected? Absolutely, but that's neither one is right. I mean, the problem is we have to stand up as a people and say, no, damn it. That's not what we want to hear. We, well, you saw the same thing at play with Merrick Garland yep. and Neil Gorsuch. Yes, it was of course. Sort of, it's so an eye for an eye mentality. Yeah, I know. You I knew there were several other constitution that in the yeah. eighth year you don't get to appoint judges right. anymore. No, I, it's hard to find. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can I ask you more broadly speaking? Mm -hmm. The last time our institutions seemed to be under this much stress was during Watergate, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people don't remember that this smoking gun tape that was at the center of the Watergate scandal was about the president conspiring to get the intelligence community to shut down an FBI investigation. Deja Sounds familiar. All over again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> we now have these reports that, that President Trump not only tried repeatedly to get the FBI director to back off, he asked top intelligence officials to get the like FBI Dan director. Coates and who else? And General Rogers, Admiral Rogers, right, right. Mike who Rogers. runs yep. the NSA. Um, McCain says this is Watergate size yeah. and scale. Do you agree with that? I do. I absolutely agree. I think that is where I, you know, that. So are it, we heading toward impeachment, resignation, something like that? I think it would probably be resignation rather than impeachment. Impeachment is a tough thing to prove. And now, of course, you've got Bob Mueller as a special counsel. And first of all, he's a dead honest, really above board guy. He's but been special, universally praised oh, yes, by everyone. By everybody. Yeah. But the problem is the special counsel is a criminal investigation, which means that those, and I will say I thought the Senate investigation was moving forward in a pretty bipartisan way, very seriously. But now what you'll have is a whole lot of people who might have been called to testify before the Senate or the House who are not going to want to do it because there's a criminal investigation lurking out there. And those things also can take a lot of time besides the fact that the special uh, counsel can be fired by the president. But if that happens, that's forget it. Then it's all over, I think. if he, I don't think that would ever happen. So it, it could really slow things down. It could, because Bob Mueller is going to be very, very thorough, and a special counsel has to be thorough and has to follow every trail wherever it leads. So it's going to be, um, it, it's going to take a while. I don't think we're at that stage yet. So for for people who aren't necessarily students of Watergate or understand how corruption or ethics violations are really investigated on Capitol Hill, give us a sense of sort of, so there are all these investigations going right. on, right? You've got the FBI investigation. Is that still going on? Mm -hmm. There's still an the, FBI but, investigation. Yes, there's there's still. a Senate intelligence investigation, a House intelligence 
Isn't there another over? I mean, and how many are there? Special counsel investigation. The special counsel. Isn't aren't there some other congressional investigations going on too? I think these like are the four major. Those ones. are the four major ones. There may be some smaller ones at, at little at finite parts of this whole story. There's plenty going on. I mean, so, plenty so going give us, on. I is guess, just, Governor, a sense of like the time frame and what we're dealing with because. I think people feel like they're about to explode if the president doesn't do it first. So, I mean, how how do you see this all kind of um, rolling out, if you will? Well, a special counsel, that is probably going to take a lot of time. Uh, when that, you say a lot that, of time. It can take years. I mean, you look at what happened with Watergate and the special counsel and the amount of time that well, that Well, the break-in was June of 1972. Yeah. Nixon didn't resign until For, August of 74. Right. So, I mean, that was a, a long time. Uh, so that's the problem in that the Senate will go ahead, but as I say, it probably won't have access to as much information or people as it would have otherwise. I mean, they'll do what Flynn did and take the fifth um, constantly. <laughs> constantly, so I'm not going to tell you what I – which, I mean, it shouldn't, but everybody says, okay, that means you're guilty as sin and when you take the fifth. But it shouldn't. It's, it is a constitutionally provided um, – provision for you to not self-incriminate, but that right there you're saying, oh, you'd incriminate yourself if you said anything, which means you did something bad. Uh, the whole thing is is just, I, I can't believe it hasn't been more than a couple of months, and yet this turmoil is roiling. He's doing a very good job, it seems, overseas right now, but well, that's I think not going to make all this go away at home. Yeah, and what about Flynn and and not coming clean about all the money he'd gotten from all these uh, Russians when he was applying to get his security clearance renewed? Right. Oh, I he mean, just, uh, it was insane. He, right. That's another investigation that's going on into him, just per just very specifically. But he will also be caught up, and I think that's part of the reason why he took the fifth before the Senate because uh, and wouldn't turn over the things because he knows the Comey investigation is going to come after him. All those people, Manafort, Stone, all those people are going to be caught up in this. Stone apparently was very happy when Comey was fired, said, oh, now I'm having a big cigar. Well, guess what? <laughs> I would put that's cigar that's blow up in his I face. was going to say, or it's don't a, light it. Yeah, exactly. Just yet. By it, the it, way, the uh, new Netflix documentary, Get Me Roger Stone, for people who want to understand I haven't seen it, I, the but Trump I gather, phenomenon, it's, yes. it's really excellent. Yeah. But we have to throw to a quick break. Uh, we'll be back with more from Governor Christy Todd Whitman. This season, Crate and Barrel wants you to play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match with your gifts, that is. Good design becomes great design when it's in the hands of the right person. No more random gifts. These are matches just waiting to be made. The host you know with the most? There's a platter designed for them. Someone else on your list into entertaining? We've got glasses for that. There's even a set of spoons perfectly crafted for your next dinner date. Match them up with the right person? and you've done something truly gifted. These gifts were designed with you and yours in mind, so find the ones that were made for each other. Crate and Barrel. 
When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. We're back with former New Jersey Governor Christy Todd Whitman. And may I call you Christy? Please do. Or can I Please call do. you CT? I'm kidding. I'll call you Christy. You can call me anything. You can call me anything. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, Christy, over. I think that a lot of people, I, you are um, sort of regal and patrician. And I think it's because you come God, I from. I hope not. I grew up on a farm. <laughs> well, I, I'm very good at shoveling. You know what? And, well, do you uh, feel comfortable? All kinds. Both literally <laughs> yeah, and metaphorically. Yes, exactly. yeah. Do you feel comfortable with waspy? Oh, You've been called that before. I've been called a lot of things. <laughs> well, well, how would you, what I mean, would just, you like to be called? Or how would you like to be described? Uh, somebody who tries to do their best. I mean, I don't know. Because there was an early story on when I first ran that I looked too regal in my tweed suit with pearls and every hair in place to ever relate to the average voter in New Jersey. And it's so funny how we're so judged by our packaging, isn't I it? I know, I know. Oh, I never wore pearls again. <laughs> Speaking of your packaging. <laughs> so you, I beg you your pardon. Be careful. In this, in this atmosphere these days, that could have all sorts of meanings. I don't I don't mean it in the in the Trump sense of the word. Um, you kind of come from Republican royalty. Your parents were for decades New Jersey's right. most prominent Republican couple. Your dad helped to build Rockefeller Center. Mm -hmm. Your mom was uh, vice chair of the Republican National Committee, kind of a pioneering woman in Republican politics. My grandmother, too. Your grandmother as well. Well, her, she was very involved in politics in New Jersey and Women's Federation. So did you grow up thinking that you'd like to run for office? No, I grew up thinking, knowing that I wanted to be involved in policy, uh, because that's what, I'm the youngest of four youngest by eight years. So I was sort of the tail end and and I got to hang around the dining room table all the time and be at a lot of events and things that my parents were doing and heard the conversation about what was going on in the community or the state or the nation. And we lived overseas for a bit. And so I always knew I wanted to be involved in policy. I didn't think specifically about running for office uh, until I got well into my career. What was it about policy that really kind of... Uh turned you on? I mean, I could only ask you that question and Brian Goldsmith that question, by the way. Otherwise, it would be ironic. It would be a limited number of people who are really turned on by policy. But something, you know, some point of conversation, some social cause. The ability to make a positive difference in people's lives, to to really affect things in a a way you think they should be going. It's, um, and it's just so involved in people. I've always been, i have a short attention span. The longest job I ever held was governor for seven years. 
I like going up a learning curve. I like learning new things and I like getting to know and, and be with people. And, and that ability, when you think about policy, you're thinking about how do you make things better? Or how do you make whatever it is better, whether it's individuals' lives, the environment, whatever. And uh, that was just an enormous turn on. And it was just fascinating. Was is there is there a specific area of policy, though, that you gravitated toward? Was it social justice? Was it environment? What, you know? No, it was all of those. And that's what was so great about being a governor. Because a governor, you deal with all of it. People often say, well, what's your proudest thing as governor? I said, you know what? From making, I'm known probably most for the plan to put together to, to set aside a million acres of open space. But I also care about the fact that we did redid uh, welfare reform in New Jersey in a way that actually supported and sustained the people who were, we were trying to move off. And I still have people who come up to me now saying, you don't know what a difference that made. And I am off. I've been working for years and my children are proud of me and that kind of thing. You know, I mean, the, 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 that's the thing I've always loved about government and politics is it's so such a wide variety of, of areas in which you can be involved. Isn't it challenging, though, to have to have that kind of expertise in, uh, 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 on so many different topics? Because I think I could never run for office because I would feel like I wasn't knowledgeable enough about policy. You are, you are exhibiting the biggest problem that we have with getting women involved is we always, as women, think it's got to be somebody better out there at this who knows more than I do. And you know what? You give a guy, with all due respect, um, <laughs> you give a guy the opportunity to do something totally outside of their sphere of, of knowledge and they'll say, fine, bring it on. I can learn. Well, we can learn too. I mean, yeah, the jobs I that? took- It's true. I, I, it's, I, when I- when Governor Kane asked me to become president of the Board of Public Utilities, I knew nothing about regulating utilities, although we did regulate garbage then, and I do know something about garbage regulation Which for my Jersey days. Which in New Jersey is no small thing. No, oh, hey, the first trial that we had was really interesting. Um, but uh, in any event, you can learn. what you, you don't. The message I give to young people when I speak to them is don't try to be an expert in everything. Know what it is you want to do, what you need to do, and Figure out who are the people. There's always going to be someone wherever you go who knows more about what you're doing than you do. Find them. Learn from them. Listen to them. Ask them what their biggest problems are. If you show people a little bit of respect, if you listen to what they're saying, they'll really do things for you, and and you can learn. I think another thing that keeps people from running for office is all the criticism. You know, the pressure, people saying ugly things about you and not just about your pearls and tweet suits. Mm -hmm. I mean, really nasty things as mm -hmm. we've seen the internet has unleashed oh, this, yes. no, it's this different bile. Now. It's, it's um, worse and, now. And so what would you say to someone who says, male or female, like, I just don't have the stomach for it. My skin is not thick enough to deal with all the bullshit that I'm going to have to deal with if I put myself out there. Well, I mean, I've had some pretty rough things said about me, particularly toward the end of my career and um, when I was at EPA. And, you know, you just have to say to yourself, in most of the instances, that's their problem, not mine. I didn't read. You don't want to look at the cartoons. You want to know who's shooting at you and why, and so you can avoid it if possible. But you can't spend your time thinking about it. It it has gotten much uglier. It is much worse. It's different than when I was running. There's no question about it. And it's hard to disassociate yourself. You will stay up at night and you will think, God, am I doing that bad a job? Am I really that awful a person? Did you, uh, have, kind of did you have nights like that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Everybody does, I think. But 
again, if you if you care more about what you're doing and if you think you're doing the right thing and you're doing it in the best way you know how, you just have to have faith in that. Well, and you're right. Beyond no, it. no social media back then. And no, I think many no people media. say we won't wouldn't want to do it to our families. We yeah. wouldn't want to do it to our spouse. Well, to you our have children. to sit down and have a long conversation with them about what it's going to be like and what they could possibly face. So you left the governorship uh, about a year early mm-hmm. to become EPA administrator right. under your friend, President George W. Bush. Um, one of my favorite stories in preparing for this is that you actually gave him his dog, mm-hmm. Barney, Barney, right? right. Yeah. Who was the actually he paid for him in the end? Oh, he did. <laughs> yeah, because he, he was insisted. required. Once he got to? elected, he, he, yes, he was required to, so he paid me. That's very funny. But that was probably the toughest position you ever held, if I had to guess, in your political life, because you were really caught in the crossfire between environmentalists who expected more of you on the one hand, and a lot of your colleagues in the Bush administration who expected, I guess, less of you. (laughs) (laughs) And the Democrats who didn't want anything. (laughs) Particularly Vice President Cheney, who had a fundamentally different view of environmental protection. Can you tell us what that experience was like, what the conflicts were about? Because I think a lot of them are very relevant today. Yeah, I mean, it it was tough. I expected to have the environmentalists and the Democrats on the other side. I didn't expect to have to do the 360, not get the kind of support from the administration I was hoping for, because the president and I were on the same page most of the time. But um, the vice president wasn't. did you have conversations with the president before you took the job to make sure you were aligned on these issues? I did. And we were. And, um, you know, you'd go in and uh, I would go in and meet with them and, and we were on the same page. And then I'd leave to go back to the office and I guess the vice president would come in and things would change. And that was not, not fun. So you and, uh, you a big fan of Dick Cheney? Uh, we're not close personal buddies. I mean, I've known him for a long time because when I first went down to Washington, it was to work with Don, for Don Rumsfeld as when he was a congressman going over to the Office of Economic Opportunity. And he and Dick Cheney were good friends. And so I've met the vice president several times. And he actually, ironically enough, is a very close friend of my son's father-in-law. Um, and so I, I get reports back. Apparently, he said, there's nothing wrong with me that a year in Wyoming wouldn't cure. And, uh, he said that about you? Mm-hmm. You'd like carbon pollution a little more if you uh, lived yeah, in Wyoming guess. for a year? I, I don't yeah. know. I said, I spent a lot of time. I backpacked in the Wind River Mountains, I mean, on a pack trip, not backpack. And when you resigned as EPA administrator mm-hmm. uh, about two and a half years later, you said at the time that it was for personal reasons, right. but that wasn't accurate. No, it was. I mean, I never took more than a month-to-month lease on the apartment. Uh, EPA was not where I had really wanted to go. I care deeply about the environment, but it's a regulatory agency. And with a regulatory agency, you just don't have a lot of discretion or leeway to make, to be creative in how you solve problems and make a difference. So, and John and I really did hate the bifurcated marriage. Um, I hated getting on that train on Sunday nights because he had to stay in New Jersey for his business. But the specific incident that triggered the time of my leaving was about the Clean Air Act. As a, a cabinet member, you weren't elected to anything. It was the president and the vice president who were elected. And you, your job is to give them your best advice. And when they make a final decision, you salute and say yes. Or you say, and my feeling was that they had a right to have an administrator who could sign that order in good conscience and carry it out. And I couldn't. I just didn't think it was right. And in fact, they went to court and it was taken to court, which everything EPA does is. And uh, they lost because the numbers just weren't Credible. So you have no regrets about resigning? You no. feel like you did the right thing? No, no, none. It was the right time and the right thing. I, and I'd gotten to the point where 
I think that my pushing back on that for as long as I did had undermined my ability to get some other things done too. Up until that point, I mean, we got, and it's still amazingly enough, and this is how dysfunctional Congress has been, the last piece of major environmental uh, legislation that was passed was in 2002, Brownfields Redevelopment, which is something we got done because I'd done it in New Jersey and we wrote wrote it for the Congress and we got it through. They hadn't done anything since 1990. That was the first one since 1990, and they've done nothing subsequently. And it's not that the environment doesn't need help. Well, well let's talk about that, Brian. Go ahead. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of the environment needing help, 2016, according to the data, was another record-setting year in a mm-hmm. bad way, the hottest ever recorded. Arctic ice pack is at record lows. Sea levels in South Florida. Uh, I, I just found this out, and I was sort of astonished by it. Sea levels in South Florida have risen three and a half inches since An Inconvenient Truth came out in 2006, mm-hmm. even threatening Mar-a-Lago, potentially. Potentially. Um, where are we on climate? Are there green shoots or glimmers of hope, or is this pretty much a, a tragedy waiting to happen? Well, I mean, the climate is changing. Uh, there's no two ways about it. And every data point that we see just reaffirms the speed with which it's happening or, or increases the concern about the speed. I just uh, finished co-chairing a task force for the Council on Foreign Relations on Arctic policy. And the Arctic, we are an Arctic nation to begin with, and the Arctic is is warming at twice the rate of the rest of the planet. And it is the canary in the coal mine. You already have uh, three or four native villages that have moved, another 30-some-odd that are going to have to move. And you run it, okay, where do you put them? What do you do? How do you move? Who do you move? Do you move the house first or do you move the church or the hospital or the grocery store? And how do you get groceries to them in the middle of nowhere? And that's happening all around the world. Um, the Vanuatu and, and islands in the Pacific, they're not going to be around. Who takes them? Are they still part of the United Nations? Who are those people? And also coastal cities here in the United coastal States, city. not just Miami, well, but no. you know uh, the, what this Arctic melting portends for millions right. of people in this country, not to be totally self-centered and inward yes. looking, but I mean, it's just a matter of decades before they're going to be severely impacted. Oh, absolutely. Well, Superstorm Sandy, you saw the kind of damage we got for that. Well, as the sea level rises, that sort of damage with the tides is going to come further and further, intrude further and further into the land, and that's going to pollute waterways. It's, I mean, it's a, it's, it's happening. Humans don't cause it, period, the end. We are exacerbating a natural trend. The earth has been changing since the earth was formed. And I think environmentalists hurt themselves a lot by being so definitive that humans cause it, because that just is such a wide opening for the naysayers. The really interesting thing is that we have proven time and again over decades that we can protect the environment and have a healthy growing economy at the same time. It's not an either or. And I know, but why do so many people see it as such a black and white issue? Well, because I I believe because environmental regulation are are easy to hate because when you do it, you're causing people to spend money or change behavior for a problem they may not see or they may not think is real. And that gets them mad. And frankly, there have been instances of overreach. There's no question about it. And you have layers because it's not just the Environmental Protection Agency that says that sets them. You Department of Interior does some. You've got local and you've got state and regulations. And it gets to be a bureaucratic nightmare. I get it. But the point being, what people don't realize is 2013 is the most recent year for which we have full statistics. 91,000 people in this country died from dirty airborne-related causes. 
That's almost three times as many people who died from auto accidents on our highways that year. And yet we spent so much time talking about how we can improve safety on our highways and in our cars. And yet we have this problem all around us. In many ways, however, we're, it's a result of it's our own problem because we have cleaned up the air and the water is clean, pure and the land is better protected. And so people don't think it's a real problem. And yet all of a sudden they're hearing from government, they got to do something that's going to cost them money. And if your political philosophy depends on the idea that government intervention in the economy is bad. Right. At any, hard, any amount. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to argue for it uh, to confront a, a threat that isn't immediately on the horizon or attacking us like ISIS. Right. Why do? You, why are you such a lone voice, a lone Republican voice on this issue? Well, there are actually a number of them, but I'm not in office, and I'm not running for office, so it's easier but, for me. So it's too scary to to talk about this if you're a Republican because you'll be outflanked on the right by people who say yes. it's going to hurt the economy, it's right. going to hurt and you'll business. have big groups like the Koch brothers who will come after you in a primary, um, you know, the, the naysayers. But you've got Rex Tillerson, who is our Secretary of State, who believes in climate change and thinks we should take some action on it. I mean, there are some very prominent Republican voices that do believe in it, and they're religious voices particularly. There is a group of, of uh, all different religions that have come together to say, you know, this is sort of basic. This is God gave us this, if you want to believe it. God gave everything. God gave us this, and so we should protect it. Well, and to your point, there are some prominent retired Republicans, right. Jim Baker, Hank Paulson, George Schultz, Marty Feldstein, who are pushing for a carbon tax mm -hmm. to deal with this problem. And then the the revenue that would be gained by the tax would be refunded to taxpayers. Right. Mitt Romney tweeted favorably about this. Do you think there's any hope of something like that actually getting through a Republican Congress? I think eventually. And we don't know how much longer we'll have a Republican Congress. But I think eventually we will see something like that because it's what makes the most sense. It's the most direct. It will have the most direct impact because we respond very well to financial incentives. And if people see that they're paying more for something because it is a carbon producer, the way it was produced, or it's it's bad on that scale, they'll make decisions. It's just the way now that uh, the Energy Star products, the ones that are more energy efficient, have become very price competitive People will happily take something that tells them they're going to reduce their carbon emissions and that they're going to reduce their electricity bills because it makes sense to them, and they'll do it, and that's helping. You, you wrote a piece in the Washington Post last December, and you said, I was EPA administrator, advice for the next one, don't walk back environmental progress. What kind of grade would you give uh, Administrator Pruitt at this juncture? Well, I mean, in fairness to Scott Pruitt, he does what the president tells him to do, although from his past history, it would seem he's very much in sync with it. And what they've been doing is trying to unravel regulations. The, the good news is they've been so slow in making appointments that they haven't been able to get at everything that they want to roll back. Are there regulations that have outlived their usefulness? Are there regulations that uh, where the new technology has superseded them? Yes. And we should be looking for those. But to say automatically that you're never going to have another regulation unless you get rid of two others, it just makes no sense. And yet that's the way they're proceeding. And so he is doing what the president wants him to do, but he was picked for that job because he was obviously comfortable doing that. And I just have a real problem with it. But this does contradict a Trump campaign promise. He said he would push for crystal clear, pure water. Oh, I know. Clean this is air. not going to happen. And yet we read every day about another regulation that either is 
being overturned or not being enforced to the well, benefit of It's not being enforced. You can't just if those that have gone final and have the 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 weight of law, you can't just do away with them with a magic wand. So that's the good news. It's going to take a while to to do that. But no, you're right. It, it it's just as if the president says he wants more coal, bring coal back. But on the other hand, he wants to re, uh, push back on regulations that would make it more difficult to extract oil and gas. And frankly, the reason coal is fading in this country is not because of environmental regulations, it's because of economics. It's because of the fracking. Low, it's because right? of and fracking, and yet we want to do more fracking. So you, you know, you're going to have a conflict here, but that's life. You get these conflicts. But coal gets so much attention from the president, from the media. And, mm -hmm. and one of my favorite stats, actually, is that the coal industry in this country has about 50,000 jobs. Right. The solar industry alone created like 50,000 jobs last year. And yet, if you were to read the papers or, you know, watch newscasts, you would think that, that we're just awash in coal that is, you know, that has been taken away and that now is being brought right. back. It's not really a major factor in our economy. Well, it was. I mean, I think what you we're going back. It was better than 50% of our energy mix. Now it's down in the 40s and, and dropping. But again, the reason it's dropping is not because of environmental regulations. It's dropping because of economics. I have to bite on something you said earlier. You said, if we still have a Republican Congress, the midterms <laughs> are fast approaching. Mm -hmm. What do you predict will happen? Well, they're certainly going to lose seats. I think without question, they're going to lose seats. How many is, is hard to say. They're a number of seats that the Democrats are saying are are more in play than they've ever been, a couple in New Jersey. At the end of the day, looking at those districts, I'm not so sure that there, there'll be tighter races, there'll be more costly races, and they'll be closer. I think there is a possibility that at least it'll get to the point where Republicans will probably have to work with some Democrats in order to get things done. It won't be quite as free a reign as they've, as they've had. I have a question about New Jersey. Do you have to have Christie in your name to be governor? <laughs> because Chris Christie, obviously, he's had a go of it, as mm -hmm. they say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's had his ups and downs. <laughs> yes, he has. So how would you assess his, his performance as governor and the way he spent his second term? I think, as I look back on it, he did some really good things in the beginning. I mean, he was able to get things done with the legislature. He worked with them. He showed himself as a real leader. And I think what happened was he started to focus on the next job and spent more time focusing on that than he did on New Jersey, although he will say, and he is move, trying to move things through now, and he's got his big emphasis on on uh, drugs and drug addiction, and I think that's, that's appropriate and good. But um, I think he got himself caught up in the as happens to people from time to time when you everybody around you is telling you you are the next presidential material. And uh, that happens to people. It happened to, it was interesting when I ran for the United States Senate in 1990, uh, that's what happened to Bill Bradley. Because he was a, he, said he is a very bright, very decent guy. And I think his problem was he just was so convinced he was going to be reelected because he had a walk on his first reelect, 16 percentage points, and was widely touted because of his background as a Rhodes Scholar, Princeton graduate, New York Knicks basketball player, Olympic basketball player, and a rewriter of the tax code that he was their next presidential candidate, potentially, that he didn't pay attention to the issues in New Jersey. He just forgot about them. Were you surprised that Chris Christie was so all in for Donald Trump and has stayed so all in? 
No, once he once he made the decision, he had to stay all in, and I think he believed it. I mean, I think he believes in Donald Trump, um, or was going to get something. Have that you talked wanted. to Chris well Christia. with emphasis, or was going to get something yeah. right? Well, as part of being there as an early supporter, that's what happens. And a lot of people who decide this is going to be the winner, and I want to be with them. And, and I, if I were Chris Christie, I would be rip shit right now. Uh, I don't think he's happy. I don't think he's happy. You know, Have you it's talked like, to Chris Christie about this and all? No. No. I really haven't talked to him since we had the uh, Super Bowl in New Jersey. That was kind of the last time, just as Bridgegate was was breaking and had a conversation with him about that. How do you think that happened? I think it was an atmosphere that was created and uh, a feeling that, I mean, not unlike Donald Trump, Chris has, he knows who's your friend and who isn't, and you have to be kind of 100% or you're not. And... um he remembers that, and I think that translated to some of his Trumpian people. He pretty in that way. Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't think there there are some certain parallels there. But he knows government. He's known government. He, As I say, he started off in his first term, I thought, very, very well, and um, has kind of moved away from the state, spent so much time out of it, working hard for other Republican governors, raising money like nobody would ever seen before at the RGA. Um, he was doing that job, but he still had, that's why always tell young people, you know, do the job you're in, the next job will take care of itself. That's but if you really spend your advice. entire time looking at planning on this is what I'm going to do next, it's not going to happen. I agree. I, I, just not I tell happen. young people the same thing, Christy. I do. There. I think it's important because if you just are looking at the horizon, you're not focused on the job mm-hmm. at hand, you end up doing a terrible job and then you ruin right. your chances of advancement. But the thing about Chris Christie, people also have to remember, is he really is a family person. I mean, he was wonderful to me when John was in the hospital and, you know, offered to send the troopers to come pick me up and if I wanted to get away for because we were there for so long, for 12 days. And he was very thoughtful that way. He can be enormously thoughtful as well. It's too bad to see what's happened, that he got so wholly in with Trump. And Trump treated him so badly. I mean... He just dismissed him and and made him like go get his hamburgers. And it stuff. was it made it seem that way whether he actually did or not. Uh, Wait, that, yeah, that, that go home, home course. Yeah, that was exactly. Really that was just awful. Just I, an I, awful I way. Think, and when he threw his support behind Donald Trump, I don't think he expected he would be in charge of opioid addiction. No, no. Which he I was guess hoping is, for much higher. Than and that. I think Jared Kushner. That's his job, isn't it? Well, everything. Is everything Jared is Kushner's Jared Kushner's job. job. <laughs> when he's not solving the Middle East and right. reforming the government, he's going to fix opioid addiction. Anyway. <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, happy note. Yeah. It's nice. There's a Superman for you right there is the rising young <laughs> Superman. Well, um, you mentioned John being in the hospital and mm-hmm. you lost your husband, mm-hmm. I know, two years ago, Christy. And uh, I think people would like to know, A, how you're doing and B, sort of what you're really spending your time on today. Well, I'm doing, I still have a business. We do energy and environmental consulting, and I'm on a bunch of boards. Some one corporate, I'm aging off the ones that pay me and going on to the ones that want me to pay them. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's the wrong way around. Yeah. Now, as you get older, you need the ones that pay you. Um, but I'm, uh, as long as I stay involved in policy, I'm happy. And as for getting on, you just do. I mean, you know, it's just, it's different for everybody, and, and you just have to decide. This is the new reality. There's no uh, alternative here. There's, there's no coming back from that. So you just learn to, to 
deal with it. How many years were you all married? 41. Wow. Yeah. That's that's a big, big adjustment. That was a big adjustment. It was, a, I think the second year, I'm finding the second year harder than the first, because I think in the second year, I'm finally realizing, no, there is no plan B. There is no, uh, it's not just a long trip. Um, you know, it's a permanent thing. And so you get on. But as I say, I've selling my house in Florida and bought a house out in Arizona for the winters. And uh, we're doing a lot of things with the farm. And the kids have been just great. And uh, the grandchildren. You're starting a CSA at the farm, right. I read. starting a CSA, Provenance Farms. And, <laughs> what are you uh, growing? Everything. You name it, we're going to have it. Uh, we've got every kind of vegetable. And they've got a, you know, for 22 weeks, you can get, if you live in our area, they deliver um, to your door enough for a family of four every week for 22 weeks. Or you can pick so you're shorter distances. still delivering for the people of New Jersey. Still delivering. Yeah, the farm is delivering. We're trying. That if was really right. bad. That was really a stretch. I thought that was good. I think you should be a political consultant, Brian. I thought it was clever. Well, it's it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I've always admired you, and um, it's really interesting to get your take on the state of the country and the state of the world. Thank you so much, Governor Whitman, for being here. Christy, thanks. Good to see you again. Good to see you. As always, a big thank you to our producer, Gianna Palmer, and to our sound engineer, Jared O'Connell. Thanks also to our social media maven, Allison Bresnik, to Emily Bina for her part in producing this show, and to Nora Ritchie for additional editorial assistance. And Mark Phillips, whoever you are, wherever you are, I, I want know. to meet him at some point. I want to meet Mark, too. I want him to play at my next party. <laughs> Thank you for our theme music. We still really appreciate it. Katie Couric and I are the executive producers of this show. And remember, you can leave us a voicemail. Actually, this was the Katie part, but I'll still do it. <laughs> at 929-224-4637. Or email us at comments at currickpodcast.com. Somebody such an air hog. <laughs> Exactly. You can find me on social media at Katie Couric at Twitter and Instagram. My Instagram feed is on fire, by the way, people. Check it out. You can see me catching a major fish, almost 30 pounds, by the way, recently in Mexico. Also, I'm Katie.Couric on Snapchat. And Brian, you are Goldsmith B on Twitter and Twitter only, folks. When are you going to have an Instagram account? I have an Instagram account. It's only for my family and friends, though. Oh, why? Do you want to wanna... apply to uh, see my Instagram I do, account? because I want to see pictures of your adorable baby, Eliza. And well, I think probably the world would like that as well, but we'll discuss this later. Meanwhile, do you like our show? Please make your appreciation public by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't like our show, just, you know, sit back, shut up, don't say anything. Yeah, exactly. Please stifle yourself, Edith, as Archie Bunker would say. Meanwhile, uh, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast as well. And we'll see you next time. What's up? I'm Will Fulton from Thrillist with some amazing podcast news. We just launched our very first podcast, Thrillist Best and the Rest. Every week, you can hear me and my amazingly talented colleagues talk about the best of the best in food, drink, travel, and entertainment. From the scariest movie of all time to the best hangover cure ever, listen to Thrillist Best and the rest on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, you know, basically everywhere and anywhere you can find podcasts.